Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Good, man. Really good. Had uh, the daddy daycare this weekend when my wife was uh, off with some friends out of town having a kind of a girls weekend. So just me and the little kids and had a had a, pla- a blast, man. We just went to rivers and hung out and got dirty and <laughs> had a lot of fun, man. It was, it was a good time. So, yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah. Playing superhero dad. I dig it. Um. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's crazy. There's just it's still like every time I look at a calendar, we get into a new week. It's like, oh, it it just was June. Now it's mid June, <laughs> um, and oh, stuff man, just I flying know. by. You guys got Tamarack this week already, so man, it's just rolling. Yeah, yeah, archery shoots this weekend, man. Heading up uh, Tuesday to start setting up uh, the course for the, our pure elevation course that we do every year up there, and be up all week. We'll have a booth uh, at the kind of vendor area up there, and um, it'll be. I'm actually super curious. You know, with everything going on with COVID crap, uh, how many people will be there or not? Like, I have a hunch it's going to be pretty crowded. Uh, mm-hmm. Just people are itching to get out of town and for sure go do something. It's kind of an outdoor spread out event, so you can be fairly safe doing it. And uh, yeah, I, but I yeah, super curious to see how many people come. Yeah, good. Is the weather looking good for it? Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's looking great. Actually, it's, uh, I was just looking at the weather this morning for setting up. It's going to be like 55 degrees setting up, which is going to be great. Oof. And then it hits like 70 for the weekend. So Yeah, perfect. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into some questions uh, on this Monday Minute. As always, guys, we mentioned all the time, if you have questions for us, just send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Uh, but we'll tackle some today. One of these, uh, this first question we'll hit is kind of uh, timely, timely in relation to the podcast series. You know, last week, Steve, we talked about introducing basically our mule deer series which is going to continue this week but you know i kind of talked a little bit about elk versus mule deer and uh, how a lot of guys tend to focus on elk and maybe why and then some of the differences on hunting mule deer Um, this guy is kind of wrestling with that a little bit so he says he's grown up deer and elk hunting in washington and he's finally going on out-of-state hunts Uh, he's 35 he's going to be coming to idaho for sure he says he can hunt all seasons, so I'm assuming he's meaning archery and rifle, like he has a good amount of time to dedicate this fall. But he's debating, does he buy both an elk and a deer tag? Uh, He says he will have some time this summer to scout, so that may influence his decision. He's currently primarily thinking deer, um, and he says either way he's going to be in the panhandle region, uh, which he knows can have a learning curve uh, for elk especially. But Maybe thoughts for him. I don't know if you want to keep it, you know, tied specifically, Steve, to kind of uh, northern Idaho there and elk versus deer opportunity, but just someone with, you know, that situation of considering elk versus deer. I know it's personal and we kind of talked about some of that last week, but what are your first thoughts for this guy? Yeah, I mean, first, you know, if you want to do both and you got the money to buy both tags and you got plenty of time to fill both, great. Um, Or if you like primarily just want to come hunt elk, and have a deer tag in your pocket in case you stumble on something, which is, you know, obviously pretty highly likely to happen. Uh, great. But if, you know, time and or money is an issue, then definitely just pick one and focus on it. Uh, if he's interested in, you know, learning, usually it's northern Idaho is different um, a little bit. But typically elk and deer country, uh, in my experiences, are, are two different places. They could be really close to each other, uh, like, you know. But usually where I'm hunting, like mule deer, focusing on them, like archery season, elk are a couple miles away, you know, down lower in the canyons. And so you're not really necessarily um, hunting them at the same time. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But uh, um, I, I guess what I was leading as he could potentially, you know, just hunt deer this year and while he's hunting deer, kind of scout and learn the country and then come back next year for elk or something like that. Yeah. Um, Northern Idaho's tricky. It's it's like a different world from from uh, central and southern Idaho where it's heavily timbered, a lot, lot more private land up there. Um, just just quite a different place, frankly. And I haven't spent much time up there, so mm-hmm. I can't uh, speak, um, you know, with too much knowledge on it, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I could see guys just um, having two tags. For some guys, I think, and I don't know if this is like personality or what, but for some guys that might be overwhelming uh, just to think of, oh gosh, two tags and, you know, might lead them to being a little bit stressed by that or scattered by that of the pressure of filling two tags. And I think for other folks, it might be really freeing, right? Like you're out there, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I got either species, I can, whatever goes, goes. And so I would almost like question your own, like that thought of having two tags, does that stress you out? <laughs> or does that really give you this, you know, feeling of anything can happen, I can fill either, that's great. Um, yeah. I agree that, you know, if, if it adds stress, I would say don't do it. Um, you know, focus on one, enjoy that. As you said, Steve, maybe you could essentially be scouting for another species. Uh, this guy mentioned it sounds like having plenty of time to hunt. I mean, you could go and uh, um, you could go into September with an archery elk tag and then always think, well, I can come back for general ri- rifle later. Um, you, you know, you could still do both species, but kind of split it. Um, yeah, there's different options. I don't know that there's one right answer there, but in the end, for me, it just comes back to like whatever gives you the most enjoyment in the woods. That's the way to go do it. Don't stress out about it. Don't make it, you know, uh, a weight of having two tags, but just go enjoy it um, with either. Yeah, absolutely. On the archery side, Steve, broadheads. Um, even here in the past few weeks, I've been shooting more broadheads and kind of doing like some final fine tuning type stuff. This guy wrote in, he's curious about what broadheads we will be shooting this season and why. Do we have preferences on two blade, three blade, four blade? And I think one of the root issues I want to hit on a little bit, how close does a broadhead have to shoot to your field points for you to use it? This guy says he his broadheads are fine pretty good out to 40, but vary too much from his field points past that. Any help or insight would be helpful. Okay. Have you seen that much steve I, obviously distance is going to amplify things but have you s- experienced that like shooting pretty good out to 40 even past that things go a little bit crazy and if so what are your first things to look at yeah so for sure i mean what he's just getting bad broadhead flight it's not that it's um it's not that there's something happening after it's 40 not yards. that it's all of a sudden at 40 yards flying like you know, changing the dynamics and flying poorly. It's just that at 40, he's just, it's within his group size. Right. So, uh, and then it just kind of starts getting magnified obviously as you get further out there. So 50, 60, it's really going to open his groups up. Um, and you know, there are some times where I've seen like the arrows, you know, the broadheads, like, like kind of doing this really uh, just terrible flight but that flight pattern also happens to line up with where your field points are at 40 so maybe at 30 he's like two inches left but it's got a serious wobble to it and it's like coming back to being closer to his field points at 40 and then it's really out of whack at 50 um yeah that's the problem with broadhead flight um it's kind of like we were talking about with rifles the other day like uh, to get into like long range shooting to really like dive in there understand it you got to break down all the little details 
Um, so, I mean, the first and foremost thing comes to, uh, I mean, obviously the bow's got to be tuned and set up properly. If, um, you know, if you're, I guess I'm going to skip past that. Let's say he's paper tuned. He's pretty sure he's flying good. Um, so then it just comes down to really your arrow setup, right? Um, so it depends on the broadhead that, that he's shooting. That can have a huge impact, just the design, the construction of it, how well it flies. Um, some fly terribly, some fly great. Some are much, much more forgiving of being slightly out of tune. Some of them that, um, you know, if your center shot is, is off or your knock height is off just a touch, like you said, um, that all of a sudden at 50 yards, that means your broadheads are six inches left or six inches right or down or whatever. Um, so it just starts, you know, showing up at that distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if everything's good, I, I guess the first thing I'll do is spin a broadhead. I mean, that you do you do that before you shoot it, right? Uh, I just use the method. I screw the broadhead onto the arrow, and then I just uh, get it on a hard surface, um, you know, like a granite countertop, anything that's just going to be uh, glass. I've used the back of my phone um, quite often when I'm, like, out there, like, in the field or something like that, and just spin it. I just kind of twist it with my fingers real quick and let it go. And I'm just watching right where the broadhead ferrule connects to the the arrow, uh, either the insert there, or like in my case, the FMJs, you're screwing right to the shaft, uh, and watching for wobble. If you see any type of wobble in there, you got to imagine like when you're a kid and spinning a top, right? Like once you get that thing spinning fast enough, it's just pointing straight up. It doesn't wobble. And as it slows down, it starts wobbling left and right. And then, you know, eventually falls over. You want that broadhead to be spinning like a top just absolutely perfect uh, if you see any wobble there that's basically telling you that the broadhead is not aligned perfectly like perpendicular to the arrow shaft so just right away you've, you've got this sail on the front of your arrow and that's going to cause all sorts of erratic flight um, if that spins good uh, then i'm going to go look for fletching contact uh, which you know with drop away rests can happen a lot um you know, they're supposed to alleviate that, but still you can kind of get bounced back. You could have the, you need to make sure your veins are orientated so that they're clear, like they're clearing, uh, as best as possible. Right. Um, and depending most setups, you're going to have your, your, uh, cock vein pointed straight up. And then the, the other veins kind of pointed out to the side, some, some rests that might be a little bit different, but you want to check for that. Uh, one way to do that is, uh, gosh, I think it's athlete's foot powder, right? Foot powder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Spray that on the back of the arrow and then shoot and then, uh, so cover your fletching. So they're kind of covered in that white powder and then shoot and then, uh, go inspect your, your fletchings and inspect your rest and see if you have a, a white streak on your rest or see if you can see where, uh, that was stripped off. So if that's good, both of those things are good. Um, then yeah, I'm just going to go right back to the tune. So that's, it's, that's where it gets tricky. Uh, it's yeah. one thing that, like the reason I started SNS archery in my early twenties was frustrated with like probably broadhead flight. And then also, uh, that coincided with like trying to go to an archery shop and, and have someone spend a couple hours with me tuning. Um, cause really it takes a lot of time. You don't just go in there and, and tune it real quick. Um, but also I was like in college and didn't have any money. So going to the archery rent or shop and paying for someone to do that, like, you know, there's all, all these things conflicting with each other. So I just finally said, you know, screw it. I'm going to figure this out and do it myself. And then, uh, I think you were probably on a very similar path. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that it gets tricky, man. It, it's so hard. Uh, 
if you don't have a good archery shop tech guy to go to, you really got to figure it out on your own and go buy your own press and just kind of dive into it. Um, and there is a wormhole you can go down for sure on, on that, but yeah. you got to just check bow tune, cam timing, center shot, uh, knock height. Oh, I mean, there's just so many different things you got to address. And I think the most important thing for me, the message I have to get to guys is you, nobody else can tune your bow. You yeah. have to do it yourself. Um, it's just flat out as far as not saying, sorry, tunes the wrong word. No one else can shoot your bow and tell you it's in tune. Uh, that has to be done by you because every shooter shoots their bow differently. Um, it's it's pretty rare that you could just pick up someone else's bow that's perfectly sighted in and you're going to hit the same spot, uh, you know, at 50 yards. You just it's that almost never happens. You just apply a different torque to the bow. You anchor differently. Uh, your re- release is different. I mean, there's just so many little factors that are shooter input that you have to do that yourself. So, um, but yeah, that's. You know, that's for, I guess for me, I get a, if I get a brand new bow, um, I shoot it, uh, you know, a hundred times or so, make sure the strings kind of like settled in. And then I go right to, uh, my latest method, I guess I've been kind of bouncing around is just bear shaft tuning. Um, and then make sure I'm getting really good, um, sorry, bear shaft tuning through paper, uh, random two different things kind of, but shoot a bear shaft through paper. It's six feet and 18 feet. Make sure I'm getting really, really good tears. And then I will go, sh- I'll basically screw on a big, nasty broadhead that shouldn't fly well, um, or won't fly well if, if the tune's not proper. Right. Um, and I'll go shoot 50 yards and then assuming that if they are grouping with my field points, then I know, uh, any broadhead I shoot that does fly well is going to fly that much better. So I can already hear guys like wondering in their heads, what is a big, nasty yeah. broadhead that shouldn't fly well? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's got like forever. I had an old, um, nap thunderhead, maybe, you know, big three blade, really long. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of my, uh, that, and there's like an inner, like an interlock broadhead I used to shoot back in the day. Um, and yeah, they just, uh, if your bow is slightly out of tune, that's where a really good broadhead, uh, an aerodynamic broadhead is going to, you know, be far superior to one that's not. So, yeah, uh, cause that instead of one inch left at 50, that big broad ahead is four five, six inches left. Like I said, it just gets magnified as you get out there at distance. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's tough, man. Cause there's so many variables. I mean, it could be, it could be center shot. It could be uh, timing. As you said, it could be all these bow related factors. It could be arrow factors, not even to do with like spinning, but like, let's say you have a, some sort of like spine issue. Oh um, yeah. I didn't I mean, even talk about spine. Yeah. yeah so there <laughs> it, it is like, there's no easy answer to this. Um, it takes some time. I would highly encourage everybody to, to take the time to learn about all these factors. Um, and I understand that it's frustrating and can be overwhelming. You're just, until you dive in and really get your feet wet and start tinkering with this stuff, you're always going to have to rely on somebody else and probably always be a little bit frustrated by dealing with these issues until you take the time to learn them and understand them, which it it can take time for sure. Um, You know, it's a path that I've gone down. And honestly, it's one reason that I simplified my setup and try to be really consistent with stuff because like right now, for example, if I go pick up a new bow and I'm having issues with broadhead flight, I know it's not a spine issue and I know it's not a broadhead issue because I've already been shooting 
you know, a certain arrow broadhead setup or something at least close to it that I know is going to fly well when the bow's tuned, if that makes sense. Um, and so having some consistency, um, I remember even like making the change from having shot elite bows for a really long time and being able to broadhead tune those really easily to then when transitioning to shooting a Hoyt and it's not like, oh, now I have this yoke system to twist and all kinds of other variables. So again, even the style of cam system that you have or the brain of bow that you have could have a totally different method of dialing in broadheads than another bow. Um, yeah, there's just so many variables. And so for me over the years, having taken that deep dive and I trust me, I don't know it all. I still have to go back and reference things, but just having consistency um, and arrow setup and bow setup and really learning a, a system, if you will, is going to really flatten the different number of variables that you have to deal with when something isn't right. Um, you know, for me, that was even in the past few weeks, um, like I said, fine tuning broadheads for me, it, it became much more simpler because I didn't have to like think through the 20 different variables. I knew that the majority of those variables were set and solid. And so what are the few things left that I need to tweak or look at to really fine tune this broadhead flight? And that made that process way more simple. Um, so yeah, just that consistency over setup, um, learning it yourself, understanding a system, and then hopefully sticking with that system in the end is going to save you a lot of headaches, I think. We, Stevie, you hit on broadheads that are aerodynamic and how the broadhead flight factors in that. Obviously, for a lot of guys probably know, some maybe not know, but you designed a broadhead, uh, used to own solid broadheads, since sold that. What and I know you've been tinkering with broadheads again, but what what are you looking for in terms of designing a broadhead that flies really well, but at the same time you also have to factor in you know the terminal performance, performance on game penetration, all that. Like, what are some of those things that come to mind? Just not only for your personal design, but to help guys consider yeah. some things if they're comparing broadheads. Honestly, yeah. I mean, if you think about the difference between a field point and broadhead, uh, it really boils down to surface area. Um, and, and essentially I always kind of described it as you are strapping or screwing a sail to the front of your arrow, right? A field point is completely round, smooth, um, has offers no resistance to the air, just cuts right through the air. A broadhead you know, you now all of a sudden you have to put a, a knife on the tip of your arrow and it's got to, you know, fly just, you know, the air's just got to slip right over it. Um, so it, the, the veins can steer it and, and bypass the, the new surface area frictions being created at the front of the arrow and, and get to the point where you're aiming. Um, so that's really when you're talking about poor broadhead flight, the bit, the biggest thing there is if those, those fins, the blades, you know, the sail isn't aligned perfectly to how the air naturally wants to pass over that. It's going to start steering the arrow. And that's why you can then, you know, offset that a little bit by going to the back of the arrow and, and playing with larger veins. The, the, the larger the vein back there, the more surface area you have for the air to grab on at the back, the more it can kind of uh, fight what's happening at the front of the arrow. So if you're getting, you know, uh, traditionally older broadheads were much bigger, you know, it was very, um, common to shoot a, a, a four inch or even a five inch feather, right. Uh, to kind of offset all that. So 
you're really looking at surface area um, and it's a balance there. I mean, just like all design, uh, you, a good designer's got to balance all these different factors that come into play. I, ideally, you want uh, um, as much damage as possible on the animal, but at the same time, you need to hit where you're aiming. So you kind of got to balance cutting diameter with flight. Um, and there's just no way around um, the more surface area you have up there, uh, the, the more issues you're going to run into. So really short, compact broadheads uh, with smaller cutting diameters as a general rule are going to fly better than something with a larger cutting diameter, uh, something that sticks out. You know, some of the older designs, I even see new broadheads designed that are like two and a half, three inches long, um, to me just doesn't make any freaking sense. I can just look at it instantly and go, man, if that isn't you know, the longer that broadhead is, the more critical going back to spinning the broadhead on a table. Um, you're basically increasing uh, or decreasing your, your room for tolerances there. Um, so you're, you know, if that thing's off just at, you know, half a degree by the time that, you know, the tip of that broadhead is three inches away from the, the tip of the uh, your arrow shaft, you go to spin it, you're going to see much more wobble and that's going to be amplified as you're shooting. So, Again, short, compact, small cutting diameter. What I, I like to do is, is like screw the broadhead onto the shaft and then point it like, you know, straight at my eye. Obviously, be careful of this. <laughs> um, but look right down it and you can just kind of see is like, is air going to slip over that? Or is it, there's a really bulky ferrule on there, funky blade configuration, um, all sorts of things that can kind of play into effect there. So, yeah, when I, uh, um, gosh, I was probably mid. 26 something like that when i designed solid uh designed the solid broadhead and started that company um and i kind of had built a list of all the things that were priority and the top of that list is accuracy like it who cares what feature the broadhead has like if it's not going where you're aiming um man that's a big problem so <laughs> it's like kind of going back to shooting rifles like yeah, it's great to have something that shoots 3,300 feet per second, but if the consequence of that is that it's it's harder to uh, tune and get your your bullet flying great, and you need to shoot slower, then then you know, man, you need to shoot slower and, and get that thing shooting better groups. So, um, so flight, and then you know, this is up. This is kind of like the burger versus solid copper uh, bullet debate, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. definitely in the camp of more penetration. Uh, a lot of broadheads are designed for the perfect broadside shots. You don't hit any rib, you don't hit any shoulder. You go in, yeah, it, you know, a mechanical opens up with a two and a half inch cutting diameter, and, and great. What happens, you know, the 50-50 shot? You hit a good rib on an elk, you hit a shoulder. Uh, what happens then, right? So that's kind of to me what I was designing for is let's get a broadhead that is going to penetrate. Uh, through that shoulder blade and actually get into the vitals and kill the animal or best case scenario uh, you slip through the ribs and just get a beautiful full pass through you got two blood trails coming out of the animal a lot lot easier to track and find Um, so flight number one penetration number two and then you start looking into how does the broadhead cut uh, how much cutting diameter are you putting on there Um, you know the angle of the blades all that stuff to kind of increase the terminal performance of, of the broadhead so mm-hmm. um but yeah you know and you can just kind of look at a broadhead too and doesn't have like uh, a very low angle to the blades that's going to penetrate better than something that's that's short and really fat right um you know the the kind of 
the slower that angle is, the better. But again, you got to balance that with you can't have a broad head, in my opinion, that's three inches long because now you're going to start sacrificing flight in that case. So yeah, uh, just a, a perfect game of of design trade-offs and balances and and um, figuring out what uh, what features are most important to you. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I've been last year I started working on a. a a prototype head and, and didn't quite get it ready and put the project on hold and, and I'm kind of kicking that back up see if I could be uh, hunting with some prototypes this year and see if I can make anything of it so I have a few new ideas that I want to implement nice nice yeah like you said it's a balance there's trade-offs either way and keep in mind guys too some of that's going to come back to this matters more if you have a, a potential for a 60 yard shot versus if you're hunting thick country and you know you're only going to shoot 20 to 30 you know maybe maybe those flight characteristics don't become as important you could theoretically prioritize other things but yeah there's no there is no perfect design without balancing attributes right like that's just you're never going to escape that yeah my my one criticism of the solid was um it cut so well so efficiently um that i the blood trails were not as great as i would like um and I've shot a lot of freaking animals with those. And the good thing is they all go down within 50 yards, uh, but sometimes with minimal blood to get there. Um, so it's kind of a, just, but it was a balance of they, they cut beautifully. And, and I don't think I've never not had a complete pass through with one of those. So it's, it's definitely doing that portion of the job. We had a, just a quick note on another archery topic. We had a guy write in after listening to uh, back in one of our TSS episodes, we were talking about, handheld releases such as like a thumb trigger releases versus um you know a wrist strap release for hunting and we talked about the pros and cons of that and um everything from just the shooting experience and target panic to one of the things that is a hang-up for hunting is what do you do with a handheld release while you're hunting just to make sure you don't lose it and all that and he actually wrote in with a interesting idea i'd never quite thought of he has our k3 hip belt pouch runs our 4800 pack system he basically had a little Kydex uh, holster made for his handheld thumb trigger release and put Velcro on the backside of the Kydex holster. And then within our hip belt pouch, there's Velcro uh, mounting point on the backside internally. So he basically has this mounted Kydex holster within his hip belt pouch, which I thought was a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought of. Might be something to look at playing with. Steve, I know you're just in the camp of like, don't deal with it and shoot a wrist strap, but I'll continue to <laughs> disagree with you somewhat on that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd love to see a picture of how that Kydex works. Like I, I, my first thought is just obviously you wouldn't want it like clamped so tight in there that it's, it's hard to get out or making noise, but yeah. Um, yeah. I'd love to see a picture of what he, what he did there. Yeah. It really made me, uh, when he sent that email over, I was like, my wheels were turning on designs and ideas. Yeah. And I thought I might have to bug Gabriel from ivory holsters to, to now make me a, uh, some sort of, um, uh, thumb release you know new system for the hip belt pouch but i thought mounting it inside of the hip belt pouch was an interesting idea yeah, yeah it's um, kind of double protection that it has to fall out of the kydex and then fall out of the, the pouch which is yeah gonna be nice you'd have to be like jumping upside down extremely to yeah. lose it at that point also, I had a guy write in, just a quick note, thought it might be helpful for listeners. He was basically asking about um, altitude sickness and what can you do to prevent it? And if you have some um, symptoms, you know, what do you do to treat it? 
it, it he said it isn't something he's run into but he did make a trip with uh with a friend and they started or his friend started having issues between eight and nine thousand feet uh had trouble coherency uh was coughing up blood sounds like a very serious situation and they came down off the mountain which is the right call but he was asking if we had talked about that um, and just want to throw out that we have back in episode 140, uh, we did a very in-depth discussion on that uh, with a research scientist, actually, who's looked at um, altitude sickness, what it is, how do you prevent it. We talked through do the different supplements, and there's things marketed to hunters to prevent altitude sickness or to treat it, and like what works and what doesn't, and if you have symptoms, what should you do. Uh, so just want to throw out there back in episode 140 is a great discussion. Uh, again, something to go back to, um, if you guys are concerned about that topic, especially for guys, you know, who are maybe coming from out East or something like that, making first trips to the mountains, um, or just have struggled with it in the past and want to learn more about what can they do. Uh, that'd be a great episode to check out. Yeah. I've been fortunate. I've never, never had to deal with it, but I haven't spent much time above 11,000 feet. A lot, of, a lot of hunting between 10 and 11, not not much over 11. You just don't see that here in Idaho very often. Or if you do get that high, there's not too many animals living up there. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but yeah, I think in Colorado and other places where you, you can be hunting at 12, 13,000 feet, uh, if I was headed there, I would definitely, definitely be paying attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. And from what uh, you know, I recall in that conversation, it just seems some people, for whatever reason, are a bit more prone to experience issues mm-hmm. than others. Um, there are certain things you can do. Um, you can, uh, hydration is actually really important and that doesn't mean just on the mountain, but in the days leading up to it, making sure you're very hydrated. Um, you can obviously take strategies of trying to acclimate, spending some time at elevation, uh, maybe gaining elevation incrementally. A lot of guys don't have the time to do that, but even simple things that I've done in the past driving out from the Midwest is, you know, instead of driving straight to the trailhead and blowing 20 hour drive straight through, we will often stop, you know, get into, uh, if we're hunting Colorado, get into Colorado, get it some elevation, get one last good night's rest at a hotel at elevation, finish the few hours of drive in the morning, and then basically pack in well rested. But you also have that one night, um, just sleeping at elevation one night can do a lot for you in terms of acclimating. So it's not, you know, if you look at like climbing Everest and uh, what does it mean to acclimate for that, it's a totally different strategy. But that little bit of exposure um, and sleep even that night before can be really helpful, I think. Um, but yeah, yeah, we talked about all that in that episode, which again is 140. All right, that's a wrap on this one, guys. Um, don't forget, podcast at exomountaingear.com is the email. If you want to send us a question, have a topic that you want to uh, address in a future episode, we'd be happy to do that. We will be back on Wednesday with the Mule Deer series. We'll be talking about scouting for Mule Deer. Uh, We'll cover both e-scouting as well as boots on the ground scouting. So definitely a good time of year to be hitting those topics. And be sure to, if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button so you receive those new episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.